Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Clifford Bob, author of The Global Right Wing and the Clash of World Politics. This is a really fascinating book and I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. Welcome Cliff Bob. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a real yeah, it's a real pleasure to to have you here today to talk to you about your book, The Global Right Wing and The Clash of World Politics. It's a book that I really enjoyed reading and really uh, looking forward to talking to you about it. Before we get into the book, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your own background and and how you uh, uh, sort of started on the project and, and a little bit of the background of the book. Sure. Uh, well, my own background is that I, well, I'm a professor of political science at Duquesne. Uh, previous to that, I was a... Uh, lawyer. Uh, I actually did practice law for a while and went to law school, so I have an interest in uh, legal, political uh, topics. Um, my first book, The Marketing of Rebellion, was about how certain local-level insurgent groups gain international attention and support from the media and from non-governmental organizations and why others don't. Uh, and I became very interested more generally in issues of uh, international activism and human rights. Uh, and after completing that book, I um, just was really thinking a little bit about gaps in the literature on non-governmental organizations and activism. And uh, it seemed pretty obvious to me that very few people were looking at global right-wing activism. Most people had looked at human rights, environmental, social justice groups. There had been a great deal of literature about that in the late 90s and early 2000s. But there were clearly a lot of very powerful uh, domestic interest groups that had gone international and transnational networks of conservative groups that opposed some of the progressive goals of NGOs and transnational networks and were actually... Um, in a lot of ways, sort of gumming up the works or changing uh, the outcomes of uh, policy debates at the international level. Yet no, uh, or very few scholars were looking at this. Certainly no one had really looked at it in a comprehensive way. Um, so I just felt that this was something that was important, understudied, and would help us really understand something about how uh, activism works, especially the conflicts between activists uh, and policy outcomes, how they're forged through this conflictive process. Yeah, and I, I think um, the focus is, for that for those reasons, really interesting. And I would also say, despite the fact that the title is The Global Right Wing, you do a pretty good and balanced job of, of covering both sides of these issues. And so it's, it's not as if you have swung this pendulum so far to the other side that you're ignoring the, the opposition. And so we'll get into that, but I think that um, someone who just reads the title might think that it's exclusively focused right. 
on one side of the equation when, in fact, you do a pretty good job chapter by chapter of, of describing the different sides of these networks. Right, and I, I think that's important. Uh, I mean, sort of the second half of the title tries to get at that, but I do think that you, you just can't look at just the left or just at the right. You, when you're trying to understand how these activist battles work, you have to look at both sides of the equation. Yeah. So, Flash. Yeah, so maybe we can, before we talk about the meat of the book, talk a little bit about your approach to the research. So how did you do this research? There are, there are dozens of excellent interviews, and, and you provide, a, um, at the end of the book, a, a pretty comprehensive list. Um, how did you get to these people, and were they willing to share their stories with you? Well, you know, this is true of my first book as well. I, I have found that uh, a lot of activists are very willing to share their stories. They might, in some cases, be a little bit wary about an academic uh, coming in and, and uh, potentially <laughs> divulging secrets or something. But for the most part, I simply send an email message to people I've identified through uh, research in newspapers or through uh, looking at websites, uh, people who look like they're key parts of activist networks. Um, and ask them if they would be interested in my interviewing them, either in person. Most of, most of these interviews were in person, or sometimes uh, by Skype, by telephone. Um, and I'd have to say, in almost every case, I have been granted it an interview. Often they'll last, um, you know, hour or even more. Uh, so I, it's at least for these activist groups who in some ways maybe are trying to you know, promote themselves, uh, at least get a little bit of publicity about themselves, um, I, I have not found it particularly difficult to, to, get, to gain entree, uh, to talk with them, often to collect documents in their offices or maybe just to copy some that are there. So uh, that was a big part of it. And, and the other part of it was um, you know, using the resources that are on the web um, basically primary source materials on these groups' websites, from press releases to uh, flyers to pamphlets and articles that they're producing. And, uh, you know, I, you have to use it with kind of a grain of salt and look at the fact that this, these are activist ad advocacy groups. But um, a lot of my research questions sort of focused on how that advocacy works. So it these materials could be used as uh, valid sources, I think. Uh, and also, of course, I'd look to sort of external, uh, other external sources that help me decide whether what these groups are saying really jibes with what, uh, in fact, has happened. Yeah, so, so much so that, that in, your, in, your pre pre uh, in the premise to the, the preface to the book, uh, you describe yourself sort of getting intermingled into the very areas that you were studying. Um, yep. You kind of you you raise one anecdote. I wonder is is there a is there a quick story about about how you found yourself not just studying but being entrenched? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think this is an issue that a lot of researchers can face. Uh, and what happened uh, quickly was that I went to Brazil to do research uh, about some pro-gun organizations down there who had some relationships with the National Rifle Association up here. And uh, as I usually do, I went in with a tape recorder and asked them if I could tape uh, our conversation for later use. And uh, they were fine about it, but then they uh, immediately asked me if I would be okay with them 
videotaping the whole interview, which they did. I, I decided I, you know, on the spot that I really needed this interview, and so I uh, allowed them to do that. Um, but then a couple days later, their website has this uh, um, feature about my coming down there and uh, sort of looking at how they won a victory in this uh, battle over gun control down in Brazil. So, you know, in a very small way, I was part of that, I guess. I was put on their website, at least, and uh, the suggestion, at least, that I have, I was sort of uh, uh, validating their victory in, in this uh, conflict over gun rights. And it happened as well in one of the other uh, parts of the research on gay rights, um, where some of what it, something I'd written previously was used in a filing at uh, the Council of Europe by a, a sort of an anti-gay rights group. They could have found that material, I'm sure, if they'd done a lot of research on their own anyway, but, um, you know, this, I guess, I, I came to their attention as a result of the research. And, again, in a very small way, I was uh, sort of made a part of the, uh, the activist doing. Right. We often think of the Institutional Review Board providing protections for those that we study. We don't often think about the protections that we need as the social scientists in some of these situations. And much of what you're describing is fairly innocuous. But you can imagine, you know, if you were studying other areas, how, how um, uh, serious it, it might get. So let's actually get to some of the theoretical dimensions of, of the book. And so in Chapter 2, you propose a model for understanding political activism. And I wonder if you could outline some of the contours of this model and um, you talk about entre entrepreneurs, problem construction, network building, some familiar terms, but the way in which you are putting these together is one of the contributions of the book. And so without going too much detail, I wonder if you can outline that for us. Sure. Um, well, I think the major uh, point I try to make in the theoretical chapter is that any uh, attempt to understand an activist campaign needs to look at opposition to it. So the kind of um, processes that you just mentioned, uh, problem construction and uh, network building, agenda setting and so forth, those are taking place in the context of um, opponent groups, opponent networks who are trying to let's say, deconstruct the problem simultaneously with one, uh, the other groups trying to construct it, or they're trying to sort of unset the agenda or unbuild a coalition that you're trying to build. And they may do it uh, partially by direct attacks on the uh, initial network, or they may do it by just building their own network, often through fear generated about what the other side is doing. So I think one of the key points I'm making is that to understand how um, an activist campaign works and how policymaking works more generally, we need to look simultaneously at two or more sides to these, uh, to these issues. And we can't just look at those who are promoting new policy, promoting change or progress, as, as some might see it. Uh, but to get a realistic view here, we need to look at both sides. And I, I think one of the other points uh, I make pretty heavily in that chapter is that scholars have not kind of dirtied their hands with the whole wide variety of negative tactics that really all sides in these conflicts use to try to undermine the other side. And uh, that stuff is often kind of nasty, but uh, it's very interesting. And I do think it actually uh, is 
a critical part of uh, activism and of um, policymaking process. So on that very point, um, you, you talk, and I think this is one of some of the writing in this book. I think is just really um, so, uh, if I could say, non-academic in the absolute best way. And one of the one of the times I, maybe I can re- read from the book is you describe zombie policy. And so on page thirty-two, you write: in some cases, their power is such that the policies produced are little more than zombies, so devoid of content that. Although inscribed on paper, they are in reality dead. Uh, did you ever think of including zombie policy in the, the title of the book? You can imagine the sales that that could have been generated. What do you mean by zombie policy? It's actually a term that that's makes so much sense, but I, I haven't seen it before. Yeah, that was a that's a good point. I missed that one. Jeez, I wish I had talked to you earlier. <laughs> um, I I, um, no, I I didn't actually think about that, but uh, yeah, I mean a lot of what I describe in this book, and frankly what I see in uh, at least international policymaking, and I think certainly in domestic American policymaking, is uh, the creation of the kind of zombies that I've, you've just uh, read about, uh, the, the, you know, policies that are very far from what the initial proponents wanted, that sometimes are at best purely symbolic, and that um, sometimes really should be seen as victories for the opponents more than, uh, you know, as just a very small step for the proponents of policy. So um, I do think it's a very important and overlooked aspect of the literature, which has really focused on successful policymaking, especially among uh, those who, in international relations, who are, uh, tend to look at, you know, the the outcomes that that did, in fact, succeed. Uh, And my focus in the book is sort of failed or zombie policies. Yeah, for those, and this is not a quantitatively focused no. book, and, and, and for this reason, it's, it's the right methodology, because there is that, that tendency, the, the mistake that, that quantitative scholars of public policy make to categorize the passage of a, let's say, gay rights bill as therefore pro or therefore a uh, sign of success when in fact it might be just just sort of in words only. And so I think that in fact your approach makes an awful lot of sense. You, you focus in your analysis on, on two areas, gun, gun rights and gun rights, uh, sorry, gay rights and gun rights battles as two separate areas. How did you select your cases? Well, that um, was primarily based on just well, the, the, the first case was the, was the gun rights issue, and I guess that was primarily based on uh, just learning about the National Rifle Association's overseas activities and being kind of shocked by it and wanting to understand it more than anything else. It wasn't really a, a situation in which I was uh, um, you know, coming up with some particularly great theoretical or methodological reason for, for focusing on the National Rifle Association. It was simply that I saw this as an important case, a very surprising case, I felt, uh, and one that at least I was very interested in. The gay rights case, um, I chose that more deliberately, uh, trying to look at a very different area of policy making, yet one that um, also uh, seemed to involve two different sides duking it out, and in at least at the UN level, uh, 
not a great deal of success over a long period of time, a long period of effort by those proposing, promoting uh, gay rights. So, um, you know, I, I specifically avoided looking at cases in which you had a success as the outcome of, you know, a, what I would say is a powerful new policy. Um, I wanted to, to avoid that sort of selection bias, selecting on the dependent variable, if you will. Um, and I wanted to sort of look at these policy processes as they developed over time uh, without necessarily focusing in on anyone that was particularly successful. Um, yeah, so in a, the series of uh, chapters, you sort of tell the story of each one of these areas over 20, 30-odd-year time period. And so to, to start, you, you trace the development of the gay rights agenda within the UN in two different periods. I wonder if you could describe briefly the pre-2003 period, and then what changed for the post-2003 time period, and, and who were some of the key actors on either side of the issue during this time period? Sure. Um, in the initial period in which uh, gay rights groups like the International Lesbian and Gay Association and uh, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, uh, one of them first based in Europe, the other in the U.S. But the first uh, few decades in which they began, or their precursors began, international activism, I uh, argue that they do it in a kind of covert or closeted kind of way. And it per makes perfect sense in the 1980s, 19, early 1990s, uh, that, that they would do this with uh, gay rights, particularly at the international level, being um, something that really was um, didn't have much real support. So a lot of their activism took place at international women's conferences um, and uh, was kind of under the uh, aegis of women's rights or uh, reproductive rights in, in the 1990s. Um, and during this era, there was... I would say just an attempt to keep the uh, issues very narrow, rather submerged, uh, and that way to sort of very slowly, in a very incremental way, move forward with, with progress, uh, at, often at very low-level UN entities like conferences or um, um, some of the um, human rights commissions uh, uh, bodies within the UN. Um, Beginning in 2003, this became much more overt at the United Nations, in part because of the actions of Brazil, the state uh, of Brazil, uh, bringing a uh, resolution before the uh, Human Rights Commission to um, actually uh, uh, recognize gay rights in an overt way. And after that happened, uh, I would say, although I didn't do a lot of research this, but I would say uh, uh, in the context of Brazil's own development of a fairly strong gay rights uh, movement, after that the uh, activism became much more open uh, in favor of, of gay rights at the United Nations. Although in neither era uh, was there what I would call a real success in terms of the UN as a body um, accepting the concept of gay rights or even the lesser concept of sexual orientation as, or gender identity as a uh, sort of scientific or, or legal concept. Um, that has been opposed uh, from the very, uh, well, certainly from the very beginning by 
what I have termed a, a kind of Baptist Burka network of um, NGOs uh, and states, um, many of the NGOs being Christian, Catholic in some cases, um, but you forming a coalition uh, with Islamic countries, uh, Egypt, Pakistan, and others, um, to block any attempt to recognize sexual orientation as a valid legal concept in international law, uh, or obviously any attempt to have a uh, human rights um, resolution that recognized sexual uh, uh, gay rights. So Brazil plays a big part in this book in lots of different places, both the, the uh, section on gay rights, but also prominently in the section on, on gun rights. And maybe we can shift and talk just a little bit about that. And one of the questions I wanted to ask in terms of describing this, so what is the International Conference on Firearms Legislation, the so-called ICFL? You describe it, oh, it must have been Chapter uh, 15. No, uh, sorry, chapter, fi uh, chapter 5 or so, page yeah. 115. Yeah. What is this organization? It sort of morphs into some other groups as it goes. What did it start out yeah, as? Yeah, before I get to that, I just wanted to make one point. Um, that is that one thing I, I tried to do in this book, which I think is a little unusual uh, in books that look at international activism, is to combine the study of activism at the UN and international level with uh, case studies looking at individual countries in which uh, the same kinds of issues are being debated. So um, I, I made a point of doing this. I don't think it's 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 been very common in international relations to to do a, you know case studies within countries of the same kind of uh, of activism uh, and then how it relates back to the international level. And really, I think the same thing in comparative politics. People who are studying uh, the um, you know, social movements within countries tend not to look at the international level. So one of my main goals in this book was to try to meld those two things together. Um, but getting to your point specifically, the uh, ICFL was an early uh, instance of a transnational pro-gun network that was formed primarily through the activism of the National Rifle Association and some Australian gun groups um, to try to, uh, first of all, to kind of protect gun rights within particular countries. The Australians in the early 1990s in particular were feeling a lot of heat from a domestic gun control uh, movement that was very powerful, and they looked to the NRA for support. Um, together with um, about, about a dozen or so uh, gun groups from other countries, they formed this ICFL, uh, which then did shift into a new organization uh, called the World Forum on the Future of Sport Shooting Activities, or WUFSA. That organization, uh, by this uh, by now, includes about 35 to 40 um, pro-gun groups, hunting groups, um, some gun manufacturers uh, from around the world, and they uh, have ECA stock. Roster status at the UN. NRA, by the way, has ECOSOC consultative status as well. Uh, and they work at the UN, in the European Union, in a variety of other international forums, uh, and in the media to try to uh, promote shooting and protect uh, gun rights from what they see as kind of illegitimate efforts to control 
the um, rights of, of gun owners and more specifically the trade in, in small arms and light weapons. Um, so this was a it, it's a very interesting example of a right wing transnational network, uh, much like the networks that um, have been studied a lot by uh, political scientists and sociologists on the left. Uh, but this is a good example of um, you know a, a right wing network like that Baptist Burka network in the gay rights a- area as well. Yes, and and you you go on. I, I think it must be must be the next chapter, and you set up that your sections with these different sort of the these um, dichotomies: uh, setting and unsetting, setting and unsetting, persuading, dissuading, deployed, denied. Sort of go back and forth: framed, smashed, one lost, promoting, and and demoting. Was sort of traces through up to a couple of the major uh, uh, major events, and it seems to me one of the major events that you sort of reach is. Um, the, the passage uh, of the gun statute in 2003, and then the referendum uh, that I guess failed right. in 2004 or 2005. Yeah. yeah, I wonder maybe you can set up sort of how these two things happened at the same time, essentially. And then as a result, what happened to the relationship between this Brazilian group, the AN, ANPCA, and some of its uh, U.S. allies as a result of these two uh, political events? Okay, sure. Yeah, here we're talking about the uh, Brazilian gun uh, laws, uh, which began uh, being relatively weak in the uh, period when Brazil was a dictatorship. Um, and uh, then in the early uh, years of democratization in Brazil, you saw um, efforts to try to control uh, the, the uh, spread of guns, and especially to try to control violence uh, in the country. Actually, initially both by the uh, Ill- criminals and by uh, the police. Um, and this culminated after um, support from President uh, Cardozo, uh, I would say in part spurred by international activists, but it culminated in 2003 in the um, passage of a very strict gun control law called the Statute of Disarmament, which made it quite difficult for uh, Brazilian gun owners to, uh, or Brazilians to legally acquire a weapon, although it was still possible, but it was quite difficult. What was interesting in that case was that um, really Brazil doesn't have a any equivalent to our Second Amendment here in the United States. There's no right to bear arms in their uh, in their constitution, um, and they really didn't have a gun rights movement until the effort to control guns began in the mid 1990s. Uh, when that happened, you had very small organizations uh, who had been involved in sports shooting or gun collecting or the sale of guns, forming a network that really transformed itself into a gun rights and right to self-defense network. And one of their uh, initial efforts was to prevent this 2003 statute of disarmament from coming into effect. They failed at that. Uh, The Brazilian government under then President Lula um, and with the support of a number of new non-governmental organizations in Brazil, 
in turn supported by international activists, did put in place this statute of disarmament. But the one thing that they were, the, the pro-control groups were unable to achieve was a ban on the sale of arms to private citizens. That was one of their goals in that statute of disarmament, but uh, they did not achieve it. What they did get in the statute itself was a provision saying that there will be a national referendum held at some date to be determined in which the um, Brazilian people will have a chance to decide whether guns should forever be forbidden from uh, being sold to private citizens. And that happened in 2005 after a long fight between the pro-gun and the pro-control groups in Brazil. Uh, pro-gun groups really tried to delay this as much as possible because they were uncertain about the outcome. Um, but all through this period, you had uh, the activism and uh, ideas of the National Rifle Association supporting uh, some of these small pro-gun groups and, and helping them uh, come up with arguments and ideas and even advertisements that they would then use, that they actually did use in the referendum campaign, which, which took place over uh, about four months in mid-2005. Um, anyway, this, the ultimate outcome of this was that um, despite the fact that the Brazilian government, most of the major media, the Catholic Church, major NGOs were all in favor of the statute of disarmament. And despite the fact that it looked early in the summer of the campaign that if the statute was going to, uh, that the, uh, the disarmament uh, referendum was in fact going to pass, uh, as a result of some of this advertising, um, the, as a result of the campaign by the anti-control groups, the disarmament referendum ended up failing by a substantial uh, margin in um, in the, uh, in the Brazilian vote. So that was a, a victory for the pro-gun lobby in Brazil. Um, you asked also about sort of the, the relationship afterwards, I think, with, with related to the National Rifle Association and some of these other groups. Yeah, so the, there's this sort of piece of this, sort of what happens next, and it sounds like they sort of reach out and... and so, you know, why don't you tell the, the story? Yeah, well, I had a lengthy interview with a um, leader of this group called the Association of uh, uh, National Association of Arms uh, Sellers in uh, in Rio uh, in 2006. I think I interviewed him, and uh, his story was very interesting in that the ANPCA, this this group, um, was reaching out to the National Rifle Association for support in the days before the statute of arm disarmament was put into place. And they did get some support. And a member of the uh, National Rifle Association came down to Brazil and, and uh, spoke in Sao Paulo and in uh, uh, Rio to a very large number of, of people down there and, and provided ideas, uh, no monetary support, but some, I think, very important frames for how to uh, promote gun rights. And you also had some of these groups from Brazil sending people to the United States to get actual training by the NRA and a number of other conservative groups. Once the statute of disarmament was passed, however, the NRA became, seemed more reluctant to provide support to these groups, uh, seeing it seemed that Brazil was something of a lost cause in the area of gun, uh, gun rights. Um, in the months preceding the referendum of disarmament, 
this ANPCA group reached out very forcefully and dramatically to the NRA with letters that they sent uh, and they sent to a number of other uh, conservative groups in the United States, basically begging for monetary support or at least for some kind of campaign that the NRA might start in the United States to show its support for the ANPCA and uh, its, its opposition to the gun, uh, the gun control referendum. Uh, and the NRA basically gave them a cold shoulder. They didn't provide support. Uh, again, I think in, in my view, certainly in the view of this organization, because the NRA seemed to think that uh, gun rights were a lost cause in Brazil, and they didn't really want to be associated with this lost cause. Then when the, the referendum actually resulted in a victory for the gun rights groups, um, the NRA celebrated this nationally and really, really internationally as a huge victory for the gun rights cause. And they said, you know, that Brazil, we should look to Brazil as a kind of a lesson on how we can really promote gun rights in the United States and in other parts of the world as well against this threat from the pro-control forces. So there was a, this interesting shift in the um, attitudes of the NRA to these Brazilian groups uh, and the, NRA, the Brazilian groups themselves had, at least this one, had a very um, ambivalent view of the NRA. Uh, they felt that the NRA was being maybe just too focused on its own interests and not sufficiently supportive of them in their hour of dire need. And then, you know, sort of in some ways, not, not really taking the credit for what happened, but certainly trying to use what happened to promote their own agendas uh, in the U.S. and worldwide. Yeah, this is sort of falls into the category of uh, beware of what you uh, wish for. Yeah, um, they always uh, an interest group research always talk about the the difficulty faced by the actual interest group when they succeed and and the reasons why failure in fact has 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 advantages for raising money for gathering support for gathering members and this is sort of a uh, international example of it yeah. that that uh, probably came as a surprise to the. Uh, organization in Brazil that they would have been cut off, um, not literally cut off, but but certainly not um, play a part in the future as, as they had hoped. Right. So maybe you can just you know very briefly as we wind down here talk a little bit about the the book came out and we are also in the in the midst of the aftermath of a um, terrible shooting here in the U.S. Uh, have people reached out to you uh, for your input and your perspective from this this transnational uh, view? on what's happening now in Colorado and at the national level in terms of policymaking? Yeah, I mean, I, I would not say there's been a, a huge amount of uh, people reaching out, but certainly um, there's been some interest, I think, in the book, which, which came out just a few months ago, um, more, um, I'd say, focused on the just the sort of surprising fact that the NRA is not only active in the United States, but also internationally. And I think it, it certainly is spurred by you know, horrific events like what happened in Aurora. And frankly, any time you have a mass shooting like that in the United States, you know, the NRA is immediately on to make some kind of statement, and interest groups on, on both sides really uh, use this as a moment to um, try to promote their own views of things. Um, I'd say my book has, uh, you know, I think sparked 
has, has attracted a bit more interest uh, because of that kind of event. Uh, another thing that just recently happened was the uh, arms trade treaty in the United Nations failed in large part, I think, because of the United Nations, the United States' uh, unwillingness to sign as a result of NRA opposition to it. So in that context as well, I've uh, been contacted by uh, a number of media organizations that are interested in discussing the NRA's role in this um, this uh, issue. Um, and similarly, the, the gay rights issues, which um, you know, part of it is at the UN. I also had a chapter which looked at Sweden and Brazil, uh, Sweden and Romania, and conflicts in those countries related to various aspects of, of gay rights. Because gay rights is such a hot topic here in the U.S., uh, it's I think people have been interested in the fact that um, the same actors uh, who are working here against gay marriage are also working in places like Romania, which is a very conservative place, and Sweden, much more progressive, to uh, fight various aspects of gay rights. So, again, it, it's, I think it's something of a surprise. People in the United States tend to be very focused on our domestic uh, political scene, but it, it's uh, been an eye-opener for people to actually see that these same groups are internationalizing. Well, interest in the book will only skyrocket after people listen to you on this podcast. <laughs> uh, your, your book, The Global Right Wing and the Clash of World Politics, again, is uh, recently published by Cambridge University Press by Clifford Bob of Duquesne University. The book is, I'm sure, available at the Cambridge University Press website as well as Amazon. Cliff, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Heath. It's been a pleasure.